0: Oh all right, so um, I'll do a, a very short recap for those of you who may be uh, visiting. So we're, we're considering different, um, I don't know controversial issues, and we're realizing that the simplistic answers to these complicated questions uh, are often just inadequate. Um, many of the what seems to me, anyway, in my experience to be the dominant strategies for navigating these. Uh, tend to not, not be complex enough uh, for um, the problems. So I mentioned on the first day of this class uh, the move to proof texting, uh, just pulling a verse here or there out of context, is not quite sufficient. Appealing to vague platitudes like God is love uh, or we shouldn't judge is also insufficient. Or simply appealing to our feelings as though my own experience uh, is canonical uh, is not sufficient. Uh, I wanted to, to bring today um, uh, a resource for those uh, who have uh, been trained in the Church of Christ strategy uh, for reading scripture and making sense of this, that command, example, necessary inference, I'm guessing some of you are familiar with. Um, so my colleague John Mark Hicks uh, wrote a book that just came out about a week or two ago, uh, and it's his, his own explanation of how he lived in that world and he loves, the book is dedicated to Churches of Christ. This, this is the people who shaped him and formed him. Um, but how when he tried to apply that Church of Christ strategy, command, example, necessary inference, he found that it ultimately left, um, it was just inadequate. Uh, when you get to some really messy issues, you realize, well, when is it a necessary inference? What makes this a necessary inference and not that one? And, and what I didn't realize, because I, I had never gone this deep into it, is there are like rules and sub-rules and sub-sub-rules for all of this, and it is just an absolute mess when you get too deep into it. And so he, what he's saying is, we need something more than that. Uh, those, that simple way of looking at it uh, masks the fact that it's actually not that simple. So if you're thinking, why is Strahan up here with this funny little map? Why aren't we doing command, example, necessary inference? I would highly recommend this. It's like six bucks on Kindle. Um, and it's written from a very respectful, loving, um, uh, from maybe the best human I know uh, in John Mark Hicks. Those of you who know him know he's a wonderful man. So so, so, did, so did you read the one that's probably that's referencing to Behold the Pattern? Did you read Oh, that? no, I have not, no, so... Maybe that's... You don't want to. Okay, all right. Fair enough. Um, So, searching for the pattern. Here, just pass it around. Uh, (laughs) Take a picture if you want. Um, So, for this class, we are thinking then um, with a more complicated strategy, but ideally, it's one that honors the complexity of uh, the problem and the wisdom of Christian heritage. So, again, brief recap. Uh, we're thinking then about these issues in light of how they fit into the biblical plot line, which is sketched here. By the way, there's a handful of these. Uh, if anyone, they're on cardstock, so If you've gotten one in the past, slip it in your Bible. Hopefully you brought it back with you. Um, the rule of faith. The belief that scripture is ultimately has this unity to it. That's the language of the coherency of the canon. Uh, and that all of this, as Jesus teaches us, should um, point us to love of God and love of neighbor. I was thinking today, it's kind of like when you go bowling with little kids and you you pull the bumpers out so that the ball doesn't go in the gutter. Some of this, uh, the biblical plot line, the rule of faith, these, these are almost like our bumpers so that our ethical um, and uh, doctrinal uh, searching doesn't lead us into the gutters. Um, so that's the framework. Uh, if... Hopefully this is a recap for most of you because I'm going to assume you're somewhat familiar with it. If not, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to previous classes. Uh, we talked uh, our second week after we went over this framework. We, we used hell, the doctrine of hell, and looked at four views and how this might help us navigate that. Uh, and then last week we talked about just war and pacifism using this. This week... And next week we'll consider uh, women in ministry uh, and how how this might help us in that conversation. That can be uh, something of a, a heated, controversial issue. So two weeks. So I'm not going to get it all done this week. I won't get it all done in two weeks either. Uh, but uh, hope this week will maybe begin to lay some of the groundwork uh, for that conversation. And uh, if I can, if I can do what I hope, I will. Um, I'll have a couple people share their experience, uh, but today will be mostly just me uh, setting up the, the conversation. So uh, let's get started in thinking about how this map helps us think about women in ministry. We will start uh, with uh, kind of the basics of, uh, of all this with the rule of faith. Um, and I thought, you know, we've, if, if you were in, in my class uh, last semester, we confessed this weekly In my opinion, we should be confessing this every time the body of Christ gathers together. Uh, So I would like us to do that, but for those who are not familiar with it and haven't heard all the conversation, you might hear language in there like, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and think that's a confession of a belief uh, in the priority of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the confession, it's Catholic as in universal. That is, the church crosses ethnic and global and class boundaries. Uh, that's what we confess that Christ has done. He has broken down those barriers. So when we say Catholic, we say, we're say we meaning lowercase c, Catholic, as in universal. And when we confess the communion of saints, this is not that we believe in some sort of um, hierarchy of the saints. Uh, the saints are all Christians. That is, those made holy because of Jesus, not because of our actions. So uh, if you will join me in saying this, uh, this creed that spans centuries and cultures, and denominations, um, and that helps us, uh, helps us think about being, and what it means to be Christian, uh, then confess this with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, Uh, that is like making sure our compass is tuned to true north. Um, so even as we enter into a conversation like, uh, how do we make sense of uh, women in ministry with people on both sides of the issue on that, we are reminded, even as we confess, um, that um, in this confession, something it reminds us that something has gone wrong in the world. Things were right, something has gone wrong, uh, and... The way that was made right, as we confess, is God took on flesh and suffered and died. It was made right by uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, That simple framework there uh, helps us remember that as we enter enter into this conversation, we don't do so um, in a naive way uh, without recognizing the damage that sin causes, uh, including, in this case, in male and female relationships whether it's the small scale, for instance, marriage, or the large scale, systemic uh, patriarchy. Um, And, in addition, as we confess the rule of faith, and we're thinking about women uh, and leadership roles, uh, we are tuned to think about leadership uh, in the church in Christ-like ways. How does Christ lead the church? Ultimately, he leads them in ways that are sacrificial and humble. Uh, I'm, I've been walking my students through the gospel of Luke, uh, and, and there's this consistent uh, message where Jesus is saying, this is what it means to follow the Son of Man. And the disciples are saying, should we call fire down from heaven? Get the little kids away from here. And he's continuing to say, no, this is not what it means to follow the Christ. Someone says, follow me. And, and Jesus says, uh, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests or whatever it is. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's fascinating about that is the juxtaposition, son of man and Daniel will have an everlasting kingdom. The one who will inherit an everlasting kingdom has no place to lay his head. The everlasting ruler is homeless. You hear the the strangeness there. Uh, When we confess the creed, we're reminded that that our concepts of what it means to lead are not uh, to be coming from whatever the, the dominant cultural view of leadership is. It's from Christ. So if we enter the conversation about what it means for women to be in leadership roles or men should be or whatever that might be, and we're thinking leadership in wrong terms, then we've already messed up from the start. But if we understand that leading uh, should primarily be following the path of Christ, then maybe we can enter the conversation on the right foot uh, with our compass attuned to true north. Uh, So from there, uh, we'll move to the biblical plotline as we are uh, trying to to set the parameters for thinking about this wisely in ways that don't prove text or platitude um, simply. So I have uh, used the analogy of uh, that I borrowed of thinking about scripture as a six act play, uh, going from creation, act one, decreation, and so forth. Not because it is a play or something to be taken lightly or fictional, but Uh, I like this metaphor because it reminds us that there is continuity in this whole story even when there's scene changes. Um, So uh, with that, maybe we map this conversation by starting in Act 1 with the creation. Um, As it says on the little map, if you want to follow along, uh, we are reminded basically that things are as they should be. Um, And uh, in Genesis 1, let me read... Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the creation of um, male and female, creation of humans, because I think this whole section is helpful to keep in mind. God said, let us make human beings in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds and the sky. We'll jump down to verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God he created them, Male and female, he created them. So he blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So uh, a couple things already as we're following the biblical plot line uh, that we recognize that there is something distinct and good this repetition of the language good shows up in the creation account after the end of every day. There is something good about there being distinctive male and female embodiments in creation. Uh, That is how they were made, male and female. That that is important. It's good for there to be both. Um, We also see that uh, in those few verses, as God creates humans, they share the same vocation in this opening uh, peace. They are to fill the earth and subdue it, uh, to rule over um, the various uh, creatures, rule as God rules, not in a uh, taking advantage of, but in a caring, compassionate rule. But my point is, at creation, kind of first glimpse we get, male and female, distinct embodiment is good, and rather than being given distinct roles, separate roles, they have this overarching shared role to rule uh, and to care for creation. Uh, Then, when we move into the next chapter in Genesis 2, uh, and there are various uh, ideas about how to make sense of the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that we won't get into today, Um, but when we get in Genesis 2, uh, we have uh, the human, uh, that's sometimes translated Adam. Uh, The human is there, and it is not good for the human to be alone, Uh, so God uh, creates for him a helper. So this is... This is beginning to bring in some of the um, ambiguity about how we interpret this. When God uh, says, I will make a helper for the human, uh, some hear the language of helper as something of a subordinate role. And others uh, have seen that the language of helper can also be used to refer to how God is a helper. Same Hebrew term here for Israel. So it's not seen as subordinate, but as uh, equal, parallel kind of role. So nothing is definitive here in the language of her being a helper. Um, and even the, uh, that Eve, woman, it comes from, can be translated rib or side, may um, carry with it the connotation that she's not from above him, from his head, from his feet, from below him, but beside him. Uh, suggesting some sort of mutuality. Again, nothing definitive, uh, but this is just part of the conversation. So, in creation, things are in harmony. Uh, We sense that uh, they are both made in the image of God, and they are both being given the same overarching role in caring for and ruling over creation. Uh, With the distinct um, description of woman as helper, which, again, doesn't tell us that much, one way or another, because helper doesn't necessarily imply a subordinate role. Um, Next, uh, Act 2, we move down. Sin uh, enters into the picture, uh, what is commonly referred to as the fall. I like the language of decreation a little bit better, uh, because it captures the way in which creation is corrupted. Um, And as the fall is described uh, in Genesis 3... What was um, where there was harmony, and now there is um, there is uh, a kind of brokenness, uh, and that includes uh, in the male and female relationship. So before uh, Adam sees Eve, and he says, "Wow, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh," it, there's this recognition of of the absolute goodness, uh, and then as sin enters the scene, you get something like the description in Genesis three, as God says. Uh, And I'll be reading Genesis 3, uh, verse uh, 16, where he says to the woman, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is seen as a consequence of sin entering into the equation. Your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. What exactly does this mean? Uh, that your desire will be for him and he'll rule over you? Well, you get parallel language to that in chapter 4, verse 7, where uh, God is talking to Cain um, that sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So there is desire and there is rule. And so the issue here is not she's going to have, like, sexual desire for him and he's going to, like, take charge uh, but the desire seems to be about uh, what what was this mutual kind of helping they're going to work together in their shared calling to care for creation is now going to be uh, this contentious relationship where one is going to desire to master the other one and the other is going to seek to rule over the others. Mm-hmm. So not a good thing. Harmony, their partners, bone to my bones, flesh to my flesh, now desire to control from both. Uh, male and female. Um, now, one of the questions that comes up as we uh, are looking at Genesis 3, and Jesus, or Jesus, and God, I guess you can say overlapping, but God is, is um, talking, or just mentions here, the consequences of their transgression. Uh, part of the question that arises is, is God saying, when he says, uh, your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. Is he saying, uh, this is the punishment that I am applying um, because of this and you need to live under this punishment? Or is he describing the natural consequences of sin? So, for example, this is uh, um, yesterday. My, uh, my oldest daughter made a little fib to us. Her consequence was she had to vacuum out the van, uh, which is a win-win, right, for us anyway? Uh, um, we punish, we get something clean. Um, this is not a natural consequence of lying. This is, yes, we forgive you, you still have to do this. So it's God saying, look, I'll forgive you and make it right. You've got to deal with this punishment. Or uh, another example is when our, uh, our kids, particularly maybe our oldest, is uh, bossy to our youngest daughter, we say, if you keep doing that, she's not going to want to be friends with you. Not because it's a punishment, because this is the natural outworking of that. So, when God says your desire will be for him and he will rule over you, is he saying this is a punishment you need to live with and accept and bear? Or is he saying the natural consequence of playing with sin is that there is going to be brokenness and disharmony between the sexes? Um, So, based on how you interpret that, um, the question will become, as we think about women in leadership roles, is uh, if this is a punishment to be accepted, do we continue to accept that even after Christ has come and defeated sin? Uh, And is this kind of going to stick with us until the end of days, a punishment to be born? Or if this is more descriptive of the natural consequences of sin, do we say we no longer try to live this way, but we try to live in the restored kingdom uh, knowing that sin has been defeated. Uh, And so even if we know this natural consequence is there, we seek to live um, in ways that show sin has been defeated. So, Act 1 and Act 2. Nothing definitive yet, but at least this is giving us some parameters so we can maybe hear people on both sides of the conversation. It's not as though these people love the Bible and these people don't, uh, but that there are ways to read Scripture uh, that that can make sense of both of these. When I say both, those who lean more towards what's called complementarianism, uh, where male and female are equal, but they have distinct roles, and those who lean more towards egalitarianism, which says they're equal, but there are um, and there are no distinct um, roles in the church. So, uh, let's move then to Act 3 uh, with Israel. As God calls a people and gives them a law and makes promises with them that they will bless the nations. This is part of the... The arrow here seems to be, I'm hoping, captures a sense in which God is, is making things right. and there's this um, kind of move as God's um, plan is unfolding in time. So with Israel, uh, what we notice there, if we're kind of thinking about what's most relevant to the, the conversation about women in ministry or leadership roles, uh, is that predominantly in Israel, uh, it is female, or excuse me, it is male leaders and I think exclusively male priest. Uh, Well, yes, it's exclusively males in the priesthood. Um, However, uh, even though that's the the dominant picture, there are some notable exceptions that kind of make us think, what what do we do with this? How does this fit into the paradigm? So let me highlight um, a couple in particular uh, that should, I I think, um, be part of the conversation. So my... Little son is named Josiah, the great, uh, one of those great restoring um, kings of Israel, one of the few faithful kings of Israel. When uh, the law is discovered um, in Josiah, early in Josiah's uh, rule, they discover the law and they realize, oh man, we have not been faithful to God's law. What should we do? And you know what they do? Here's what they do. Let's go to Second Chronicles. Chapter thirty-four. I know Second Chronicles is a favorite for uh, probably nobody in here, but <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter thirty-four, verse nineteen. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to a bunch of people. I won't read their names. Verse twenty-one. <laughs> Go and inquire of the Lord. What is he going to? Do? He's sending them to inquire of the Lord. For me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah, about what is written in this book that has been found, great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us, because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. We're in trouble. Go inquire of the Lord. So where do they go? Verse 22, all these folks, Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him, went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who is a woman who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, dot, 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 verse 23, she said to them, notice how she opens up her speech, she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Something's gone wrong, Josiah recognizes, they say, let's inquire of the Lord, they go to a prophetess, and she speaks on behalf of the Lord. So, as we're (laughs) thinking even in terms of uh, Israel, which is largely male-dominated in leadership roles, there are exceptions such as Huldah. And we've got to think, what's going on that someone like Huldah is recognized as the person to talk to if you're inquiring of the Lord? And not only is she saying, well, this is what the Torah says, but she speaks on behalf of the Lord. She represents the voice of the Lord to the king. So, pretty, pretty big deal there. Uh, or, uh, many of us are probably more familiar with Deborah, one of the judges, so, for instance, uh, this is the time in between um, the, uh, the people of Israel kind of entering into the promised land or beginning that move uh, and, um, and the, king, um, the kingdom. So where you have kings ruling, you have this place where judges are kind of in charge. This is who the people look to. So, for instance, in the book of Judges, chapter 4, verse 4, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of so-and-so, was leading Israel at the time, or yours might say judging Israel. So she's not just sitting like in robes saying yes, no, or, you know, according to the law. But this is a a leadership role. Um, She held court under the palm of Deborah between these places, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, she speaks just like Huldah on behalf of the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you go take with you, and then she tells him what to do. And Barak, uh, verse 8, says, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. And you can read the rest of the story, but essentially Barak recognizes uh, or believes that the Lord is with her, she speaks on behalf of the Lord, and she is the recognized leader of Israel. So, Act 3, Israel. Uh, as we're trying to make sense of this, uh, women in ministry, we keep in mind uh, that there seems to be... Um, a dominant uh, male leadership with some notable exceptions. So, as we're thinking, what does this mean for us now? We have to think about it in terms of uh, what was going on in Israel. Was this like an accommodation to a patriarchal culture? So God says, this is mostly what's going on. Men are in charge. I'm going to stick with that, but I'll give these little um, hints with the Holdas, uh and the, um, and the Deborahs, not to mention the Esthers, Ruths, and Hannahs, that That this isn't, it's not the patriarchal structure that God is um, so much concerned about, but rather that he's willing to work with that. That's one way of reading it. Uh, Another way for those maybe who still tend to more the complementarian that says, no, we need distinct roles, is they'd say, no, the exception actually proves the rule. There are so few because this is the way things maybe should be. And even someone like Deborah, uh, who does good, um, you get this refrain in Judges, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in the land. In other words, uh, for those who lean more towards complementarianism, they're saying, yes, there are exceptions, uh, but we don't let the exceptions uh, be our primary guide. So you can still see this doesn't fix anything. This doesn't solve it. But maybe it helps us uh, not not just talk past one another or not demonize the other. Uh, Name the class, neither fundamentalism nor liberalism. We're going to try to not be so polarizing uh, and seek to have open ears uh, in this. So, next we've got um, Act 4 with, uh, with Jesus' ministry. So, when he calls 12 apostles, uh, they are all uh, men. And yet, uh, so it's kind of like Israel, mostly male leaders, yet there are some notable exceptions. Uh, for instance, in Luke 8, you have women uh, who are following... Um, Jesus, and they seem to be in this posture of disciples. Uh, they are providing for uh, the disciples out of their own resources, or for the, for the followers of Jesus out of their own resources. Um, and, at least according to one scholar that I read, uh, rabbis in that time would not have had something like this. Rabbis of the day would have had exclusively male disciples. But these hints that uh, Jesus here has female disciples uh, is maybe suggesting what some have seen as something of a redemptive arc. These hints that God's working in a patriarchal culture, male leaders, but he's already kind of breaking or or, um, he is uh, slightly kind of shifting the culture. So, no one had female disciples, but Jesus is going to bring in some female disciples, uh, even if they're not among the inner circle, is a way of reading that. Or Mary and Martha uh, in Luke 10, verses 39 through 42, uh, where Mary is sitting uh, at the feet of Jesus, uh, and this can be understood as a posture of a disciple, as a learner. This is not uh, necessarily the... um, So if you're not familiar with this, uh, I'll read this little section so I don't assume too much. Uh, I've taught the Gospel of Luke and the freshman class story of Jesus like 20-something times, so I just assume everyone knows all these stories. Um, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman (coughs) named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. This is what I'm talking about. Sounds like she is in uh, what would be maybe a traditional uh, discipleship uh, posture. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she was doing what would be expected of females in that culture uh, to be uh, hosting. Um, And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So I can't get into all the details of this, but this is possible, and I don't think stretching it, to see uh, Mary in a discipleship posture and Jesus commending it. Uh, So, again, primarily uh, males in leadership, the twelve, the inner circle, uh, and yet you have these uh, women who are following Jesus that seems to be breaking the cultural mold of that time, and Mary at the feet of Jesus and at the end of the Gospel of Luke, the very first witnesses, the apostles to the apostles, are the females who, uh, who um, see the empty tomb and go and report uh, what, the, uh, what they have seen. All right, so that's Act 4. Next, uh, we have Act 5. And as with Israel and as with Jesus, so in the New Testament church, Um, we see that it is uh, mostly males uh, in positions of leadership. Um, So after um, Judas has killed himself and they want to uh, kind of go back to having 12 in the inner circle, they uh, specifically look for uh, male. Our New Testament authors are all male, although some think the author of Hebrews isn't. I think they just want that to be the case, but uh, I don't know. Uh, It doesn't matter to me, I just, I think that's one of those where uh, it's trying to force something that's so hard to defend. Um, Yet, just as with Israel, the story the Act 3 with Israel and Act 4 with Jesus, there are some interesting and notable exceptions. Uh, We have uh, several of these, particularly in this shout-out section, at the end of the letter of Romans. Uh, So, kind of following typical letter-writing practice, um, Paul will, will give greetings Uh, to different people, and three prominent women show up. uh, In this uh, chapter 6, Romans 16, 1 through 7, we have Phoebe and Priscilla and Junia, so I'll read that briefly. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So uh, Phoebe here is is a deacon and benefactor. I guess she's a deaconess. Uh, And so next week we might talk about what responsibilities that might uh, entail. And if if she is the one who is carrying the letter uh, to the church in Rome, because there wasn't a mail system in that day, people would carry these letters, uh, she very well may have been the one who read and interpreted the letter as would have been common practice in that day. So Phoebe is definitely the deacon a deaconess and a benefactor, one who who helps support things. She may have also been the letter reader and interpreter of Romans for the Romans. Next, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Uh, Greet also the church that meets at their home. So we have Priscilla and Aquila, leaders of some degree, uh, who uh, host a church. And then uh, we have... Well, Mary, but verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia here is is female. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, and this is the line that's really got people scratching their heads, they are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. They were outstanding among the apostles. Um, So as I said, next week I'll talk about what that might mean for Junia, a female, to be called by Paul, an apostle, and what might be implied by that. Um, And then, uh, in the New Testament, places like 1 Corinthians 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 5, there's references to women praying and prophesying. Or in Acts 2, when the Spirit of God uh, at Pentecost uh, falls upon the people, uh, Peter says that this is what was predicted in the last days. Not last days as in Armageddon, uh, last days, that the last days are at hand. That is, that is uh, the kingdom of God is breaking in new and, and and unprecedented ways. And in the last days, which is now, I will pour out my spirit on all peeper, people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So, from Peter's perspective, the pouring out of the spirit signals that this is the last days that Joel predicted, the prophet Joel that he's um, referencing here. And in the last days, in which started then, which we're still a part of, uh, the expectation is that uh, men and women will prophesy. All right, so that is uh, uh, a glimpse of Act 5, the church. Once again, primarily males in leadership with some notable exceptions that lead some to see, once again, something of a redemptive arc. God is is working through his people and the patriarchal culture with mostly male leaders, uh, and yet there are glimpses that this is not uh, the only way to do it, that maybe uh, that is a cultural expression uh, and it's not uh, necessarily the only expression, whereas those who are complementarian would say, no, um, we stick with what the dominant picture is. And then finally, Act 6, we get uh, renewed creation. This is when God finishes the work he began, everything is as it should be, no more lasting effects of sin, um, that disharmony we got back in Act 2 between males and females, and, and we must keep in mind that just as Jesus, when he was resurrected, and gives us a sense of what the resurrected body will be like at the end, Jesus <coughs> continues to be a man. Uh, we do not become um, <coughs> disembodied spirits, uh, we uh, have a resurrected body, and those resurrected bodies seem to still be uh, gendered, uh, which suggests that just as it was good for there to be male and female, uh, and have that distinct embodiment, so it will be good in um, in uh, the new heavens and new earth for there to be male and female, even if there may not be uh, if it may not be for procreation's sake, but maybe there's something distinctly good about that embodiment. All right, so what do we do? Uh, perhaps with all of this that we've looked at, how does this give us bumpers uh, for our conversation so that we can hear one another rather than villainizing and talking past one another, (coughs) or rather than turning to simplistic answers? Uh, Well, uh, as I just mentioned, we keep in mind there is a goodness to distinct male and female embodiment. And yes, I know that this brings up some issues with the transgender conversation, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks, but um, but the overall picture is that it matters uh, that we are embodied uh, and that is a good thing, uh, that we are male and female. Uh, That this this plot line uh, reminds us that sin has made damaging effects on male and female relationships and so if we think we're navigating this and it's just all neutral playing ground, we are being naive. Uh, That sin is seeking to work at small levels between males and females and large scale levels. And it's not all males bad against females. Uh, it goes, it cuts both ways. She will desire to master him and he will rule over you. Um, there is equality here of sin's effects, even if it maybe shows up in different ways. Um, and uh, wherever you fall on this issue, whether you lean more towards complementarianism or egalitarianism, uh, you need to do so in a way that acknowledges the um, the ambiguity of things, where males are the primary leaders uh, in Scripture, and yet there are notable female exceptions. So, a simplistic answer is not going to cut it, because a simplistic answer doesn't make sense of the complexity of the biblical witness on this account. So, we're kind of moving along. Rule of faith, biblical plotline. The coherency of Scripture is is where I will camp out for the most part next week, although I've got a few more things to cover today. But just as a preview, uh, we will spend a bit more time considering those complicated texts, a couple of those texts that lean towards uh, distinct roles to complementarianism, like 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Timothy 2. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, uh, but she should uh, remain silent, 1 Timothy 2. So that sends to, on first reading at least, maybe second, third reading, uh, lean towards complementarianism. And then we have two that lean more towards egalitarianism. Galatians three twenty eight. There's no more uh, slave or free, Jew nor Greek, male and female. Uh, and the Romans 16, uh, this shout out to women who are uh, deacons, benefactors, and apostles. So we'll think about how to make sense of those. Um, so I'll close with our little acronym search. To give you a few few additional little pieces uh, to wrestle with or to, to bear in mind uh, that will hopefully help us next week. Um, we do this well when we um, allow the Spirit to be shaping us, uh, not simply as I've said before, and I think I need to keep saying it again and again. Uh, not because we're just listening for the Spirit to give us the like the check mark. Okay, I approve of that, but also we need the Spirit. We need to be leaning. Um, and opening ourselves to the Spirit because the Spirit uh, is, is, um, can help us where we have hardened hearts uh, and maybe deaf ears because of sin. Um, again, could be on both sides of the issue, but we need the Spirit. There is a place for discerning giftedness as well, though, in this, uh, listening to women who, um, who seem to be gifted in preaching and prophesying and leading. Um, experience. Uh, The next letter in our search acronym. So we should listen not just to the voices that we agree with, but to the voices that we disagree with and listen with humility and empathy. Uh, And that we should listen uh, to males and females, particularly since this is about um, a gender kind of issue, on both sides. Males for and against, females for and against. Um, And to generational differences in this as well, among other things. A, in our acronym, as we listen to our ancestors in the faith, this is what I think of as the lowercase t tradition, that um, it, it is not um, that our ancestors were flawless or couldn't make mistakes, but that we do expect the Spirit of God has been working in the church prior to us, and so we might think about how they navigated this uh, and see if maybe we have some blinders there. And uh, similar to... Um, To our plot line, I asked uh, my colleague, Lauren White. Uh, I said, what's the history of this? Because this is something that I don't have as much knowledge about. And she says, especially when the the, the institutionalization of the church. First few centuries of the church, the church is persecuted, they're scattered. They don't have this same kind of structure. But once the structure begins to come in place with Constantine, so uh, around that time, uh, with greater institutionalization, uh, there is a move with males uh, in, uh, in prominent positions, and in authority, but notable exceptions. Teresa of Avila, uh, Gregory, one of the Gregorys, I don't remember which, um, his sister instructed him. Um, you have these mystics like Julian of Norwich. Um, females were the first monastics, uh, and they would occupy positions teaching and leading, including uh, men. The R, we reason. We're, trying to, we're going to try, especially next week, to make sense of how to think of the coherency of the canon um, and um, how to think critically about this. We pay attention to community. We should hear each other, the local community. But if we confess one holy Catholic church is a universal church, we should listen to how's the global community navigating this. The church is now bigger, uh, or at least on track to be bigger, in the global south uh, than here uh, in the States and in Europe, um, and uh, we should be paying attention to how they are thinking through this. Uh, and then, of course, surely, hopefully at this point, we realize our need for humility uh, as we listen, <coughs> as we take seriously the reality of sin all around us and even the reality of sin that we wrestle with ourselves. Um, so that's the that's the, the groundwork uh, that maybe we can build upon uh, next week. All right, I have... Four minutes for questions. Uh, any anything we need to consider? Your brains are full, hopefully. Yeah. All right. See you all um, next next Sunday. If someone will bring me that book uh, that I handed out. Hey. All right. <laughs>